Job 19, which is on page 445 of the Church Bibles. Page 445. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. It is true, if it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I, gri- though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way, so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as on a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my own wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after that, my sin, uh, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, I myself will see him, with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me, if you say, how will we hound him? since the root of the trouble lies in him. You should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will uh, bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. Now the talk. How would I put this forward a little bit so I'm closer to the mic? All right, shall we pray? Father, we thank you that our words are written in your book and that you have promised to bring us home to yourself. And we pray that now as we look at this part of your words that we would see you more clearly, that we would come face to face with Jesus and that we would gain confidence uh, to live for him. We pray in his name. Amen. up a bit. Uh, Is it going to get better? Is it going to get better? When a child asks that question, you can't help but say yes. Yes, it's going to get better. I was faced with that question. One of our children fell off a top bunk and broke her arm in her sleep, which is not a fun experience. We were awoken to screaming. I rushed into the room And there's that disturbing feeling as a parent that I just don't know how to stop the pain. It's one of the hardest things you face as a parent. 
when your child is in pain and you can't do anything to fix it. But of course, you, you reassure their tearful eyes that yes, everything is going to be okay just as soon as I can get you buckled into your stupid car seat uh, and daddy is going to fix it, or at least the doctors will, uh, as soon as we get to the hospital. But of course, uh, as, as you grow up and as you become an adult, you realise that it's not always true that things get better. That life is more complicated than that. And you experience that that feeling of one day having hope and the next day falling into despair and depression. That gnawing feeling deep down. And God feels absent. And it's really this tension between hope that things are going to get better and despair and hopelessness that we see in the, the central section of the book of Job. We look now at the second cycle of speeches from Job chapter 14 to Job chapter 20. Again, we're dealing with a, a massive chunk here. We'll see how we go. Uh, but really, this second cycle addresses the question of hope. Is there any reason to hope that things are going to get better? The word hope occurs a number of times during this section. Now, it's important to keep in mind what kind of a book Job is. It's a wisdom book. It's part of the, the books of the Bible that are referred to as the wisdom literature. And therefore, it's a book which gives us understanding. It's designed to give us wisdom into the human condition, wisdom into how the world around us works, the psychology of suffering, as we saw in the last session, and in this section of Job as well. It's a book which helps us to understand the nature of suffering, an exploration of of grief and loss, and the deep questions about God's relationship to all of it. And in this second cycle, there's this exploration of the, the phenomenon of hope. And our, the impossibility of living without hope, and yet, what do you do when you can't see it? <coughs> I'm going to look at this section in three headings. Firstly, how does suffering crush our hope? How can suffering have the impact of destroying hope? Second, how does isolation make our hopelessness even worse? And then thirdly, how do we find hope? Where, where is the place of hope in suffering? So firstly, let's think about how suffering can crush and destroy hope. Listen to these grim words in chapter 14. Have a look there. Job chapter 14, verse 1. Mortals, or man who is born of woman, is few of days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like fleeing shadows they do not endure. Few of days and full of trouble. Suffering, deep suffering, brings us face to face with this reality. Whereas if we've tried to ignore it before, the fragility of life is shoved in our face. 
that is what suffering does. And in this chapter, Job uses the illustration of a tree. He says, with a tree, uh, there is hope. Verse 7. At least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again. And its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. Uh, we had uh, a lemon tree in our backyard. It was uh, pretty useless. It had diseased. We chopped it down. And yet, sure enough, after a few months, it began to sprout again. Hope. But only for a tree. Because for us, if we are cut down, there is no hope. People don't grow again after they die. And when you're in deep pain, this reality is brought right into your vision, isn't it? That reality of death that is easy to avoid and yet in suffering is shoved in your face. And you can feel, therefore, that God is intent on rubbing this reality in your face and intent on crushing whatever joy and hope you, you were trying to get out of your short and temporary life. Verse 18, chapter 14, 18. As a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away the stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you, God, destroy a person's hope. Chapter 17, Job reflects on, on this almost cruel reality that humans can't live without hope. They... We can't entirely give up. We always have desires. Chapter 17, verse 11. The desires of my heart turn day into night. The face of dark, the, the darkness, light is near. But if the only home I hope for is the grave, then what kind of hope is that? He's, he's reflecting on that human experience that we always have desires. Our nature is always, we're always looking to the, toward the future. And yet in suffering, we're faced simply with a dark future the grave. We're faced with that reality, and then what kind of hope is that? Under the Soviet Union, uh, we're hearing a lot about the Ukraine at the moment in the news, but under the Soviet Union, uh, in the Ukraine, millions died of starvation under Joseph Stalin's regime, where he centralised uh, farming, and as a result of his economic policies, millions of people died from a lack of grain and food. And there's this first-hand account, uh, listen to these words uh, by an author who saw this uh, horror. He says, on a battlefield, men die quickly, they fight back. But here I saw people dying in solitude by slow degrees, dying hideously, without the excuse of sacrifice for a cause. They'd been trapped and left to starve, each in his own home. And by a political decision made in a far-off capital around conference and banquet tables, there was not even the co consolation of inevitability 
to relieve the horror. It's just unnecessary. Hopeless suffering. See, there's some kinds of suffering we experience and pain that, that we can move on from, we can endure. You, you, you're, you have some sort of injury, it heals. You lose your job, you're laid off, and you apply for another one. But what about the suffering that is overwhelming? What about when suffering is terminal? When the damage is irreversible? And we can try and ignore it, and, and we do, and we're particularly good at this in the West. Uh, pretend that suffering isn't a problem, uh, death isn't a reality, or at least it's not really that big a deal, and put a positive spin on things. But the wisdom of the Bible is that death really is a problem. It leaves injustices unresolved. It leaves pain unhealed. And it erases the best things about us and about our communities about our hopes. It's the kind of suffering that screams out for an answer. And yet the only answer, there's no answer from the earth. The only answer is, is, is if it comes from God. And yet for Job, God is silent. Now, before we get on to where hope does come from for Job and how he holds on, the situation actually gets worse, and this is Job after all, so uh, more depression, sorry. Uh, but what makes it worse, again, is Job's friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three we met in the first cycle of speeches, and these three have come to comfort Job, but strangely enough, they do the opposite. They end up condemning him. They, they call him to repent. And here, they come back for round two. Ding, ding, here we go. And the speeches of the friends, well, they get shorter. You notice through the book, they get shorter, they get louder, they get more harsh. <coughs> and if Job was looking for any kind of support or glimmer of hope from his friends' words, he gets absolutely nothing from them. Chapter 15, have a look there. We hear Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Would a wise person answer with these empty notions or fill their belly with the hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety, sorry, piety, and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. He says, Job, you are, you're talking like an unbeliever. You're denying the faith that has been passed down to us from, from generations. And Eliphaz goes on to say, you know, Job, it's, it's sad to see what has happened to you. I'm sorry to see it, but your own words condemn you. you. You sound more like the wicked. Bildad, the second friend, chapter 18, he says, the verse 4, you're, Job, you are just tearing yourself apart in your grief and your rage against God, raging like a madman, trying to 
move the earth itself. But if you do that, if you keep on this path, you are the one who is going to be moved from your place. You're the one who's going to be destroyed. And finally, the third friend, Zophar, in chapter 20. Zophar simply declares the fate of the wicked in a long uh, poem where he describes all the horrible things that are coming on the wicked using the language that Job himself has used in his cry of despair. The implication? Well, Job, you are one of the wicked and you will be destroyed. See, what is, what is the suffering person like Job need the most? What, what, what is someone who is in this place of hopeless need? They need encouragement. They need someone to come along beside them, someone who will stand with them, even someone who, who will fight for them, fight for hope. But Job gets absolutely none of this from his friends. It doesn't matter how much he appeals to their compassion, how much he speaks of his misery, they will not offer a glimmer of hope. Now, why, why, why is it that these friends respond in this way? It seems like, you know, if they had an ounce of care for Job, they would try and help him out. In the last cycle of speeches, we saw that partly it was because of their view of God. They didn't, don't want to give up that view. Everything happens for a reason, everyone gets what they deserve in the end, and they, they simply don't want to change their views or have their views challenged by Job's experience. But here in this section, we actually see that the reason for their response is deeper than that and more personal. Their theology enables them not to have to suffer with Job not to have to stoop down and sit with him. It's a, it's a th- convenient theology. Because to stand on the side of the sufferer and to fight f- f- for them means you have to suffer with them. I uh, work with a, um, a graduate at, at Massey University who's doing an internship this year, ministry internship. Her name's Marina. And when she was 14 years old, she dived into a swimming pool and uh, uh, incurred a a spinal cord injury, Uh, quite high up in her spine, meaning that she is completely paralyzed from about here down. She has part movement in her arms, Uh, but she is wheelchair-bound, and she works on campus meeting up with uh, students, uh, sharing the gospel with them, and it's been a joy to work with her. But for me, it has helped me understand just how dependent someone in that position is on others to help them. In fact, some of her carers who help her get dressed in the morning, uh, help her in the most basic tasks of life, have become some of her closest friends. And yet, they've been hard to find. See, what do you need if you're in that position? If you, if you have a chronic illness or a significant disability, you, you need someone who's on your side. You need someone who can fight for you and advocate for you. Someone who's, who's willing to share in your struggle. If you're in a legal battle, 
What kind of a lawyer do you want? You don't want some distant person who doesn't really care that much about your case. You want someone who is invested in you as a person and who is willing to fight because they've entered into your situation. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard for us when we see the suffering of others, when it seems intractable, to enter into it. We want to remain distant. And we experience that ourselves in suffering, and and we do it to others. In fact, it's more convenient, isn't it, that that kind of view of karma that probably, after all, they deserve it or need it in some way, that God sent it to them to discipline them, to make them stronger. And so I'll just let them suffer at a distance. Even if we think that just unconsciously, it's very easy, isn't it? Because it allows us off the hook. Who, who, who wants to take on someone else's suffering? We have enough of our own. Who volunteers for that? The, the word sympathy li- literally means to suffer with. And so the result is, as we see in Job's case, that often those who suffer the most are actually the most alone, the most isolated. And so suffering brings us face to face with our fragility and it can isolate us. And and both of those things contribute to that sense of hopelessness for Job. And yet finally... Where does hope come from? Where does Job's hope come from? Why does he not give up? Well, finally, we see that our help must come from heaven. Our help must come from an advocate, someone who will take up our cause. See, what, what, how is it that Job continues He seems to be in such a hopeless situation, doesn't he? He's lost everything. He's close to death. His closest friends have turned against him. And yet he holds on. Why? Well, in the central section we we see, because in the middle of all of his experience and despair, he begins to speak of someone who will take up his case before God. It's not someone around him, no one on earth. He's been looking around for that and hasn't been able to find anyone who's willing to take up his cause. But Job begins to speak of an advocate in heaven who will be able to take up his cause. We hear about it firstly in chapter 16. Have a look there, chapter 16, verse 18. He says, earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. Job sees somehow that perhaps there is someone in heaven who will hear him and take up his cause with God. A heavenly figure. And again, we hear the same hope in chapter 19, which we heard read. Have a look there. Chapter 19, verse 23. 
Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Why does Job want his case to be written down? Well, he's about to die. He's about to be erased. He asks for his experience to be written down. And then he says these words. Verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh I will see God see Job is hoping that his case as hopeless as it is will come before God it it, it will come before this courtroom of the most high and and he hopes that even if he dies that will happen that somehow his, his experience will be written down and this Redeemer will present it. This Redeemer who he believes is there and exists and lives. Now, the word Redeemer here, the, the Hebrew word Gaol, is, is a legal advocate. It's used in the Old Testament of someone who comes alongside you in a hopeless case to argue for you. You're in trouble. You're being prosecuted. Uh, everything is against you. The Gaol is the advocate who will stand up for you and take your case and fight for you in court. And Job hopes that there's been someone who's been taking notes and writing everything down so that this figure will be able to take his case to God. But did you notice when Job speaks of that day when his case will come before God, Did you notice Job's hope? He hopes that he will be there to see it. Did you notice that? He says, and in my flesh, I I will see it. I will be there and see God at the moment that my Redeemer speaks for me in God's presence. In my flesh, I will see God. What is Job hoping for? He is hoping for his own resurrection. Now, we, we might hear that as, as Christian believers, readers of the New Testament, and think, well, yeah, sure, the resurrection is all over the Bible. Everyone knows that we'll be raised one day and, and everything will be made right. But no, th- this hope is unheard of in the ancient world. Uh, the, the Greeks certainly didn't hope for a post-mortem bodily existence, resurrection from the dead as physical, recreated physical beings. And even in the Old Testament, before Jesus turns up and rises from the death, actually, the mention of the resurrection is very rare. And so for Job, someone outside of Israel, wrestling with his suffering before God, how how does he know this? How, How does he come to this belief that God will vindicate him, that he will have his day in court and he'll be raised again to see his Redeemer speak for him? How does he see that there is a mediator? It's, it's as if, just for Job, God pokes some holes in the lid. You know when kids get insects and catch them, put them in a jar and put a glad wrap over the top? You have to poke holes in so that they can breathe. The air comes rushing in. It's, it's as if God does this for Job and gives him a glimpse of the sun 
of God who stands in heaven ready to come. There is an advocate. And you know what? Job was right. He sees rightly. Even now my witness is in heaven. He sees it. Because for us, we know. God has sent that mediator. The coming of Jesus. God, he, he punches his hole right through that lid. And hope rushes in. Why? Because when Jesus comes, when the Son comes to fight for us, he takes up our cause. He takes on flesh. He identifies with us in our suffering. And now, risen as the judge of all, he sits at God's right hand in heaven and is able to advocate for us. So we, we might be used to thinking of Jesus as an advocate for us as sinners. As a very common thing for us to celebrate in song and to, to read in the scriptures. <coughs> he is the one who takes on our guilt, who forgives our sins, who reconciles us to God, who advocates for us as sinners. But the wonderful news of Job, and because of this wonderful reality that God has brought us close to him and justified us and made us right with him, and, and therefore there is now no condemnation, nothing that separates us from God's love, even because of our sin. God has overcome that in Christ. But the wonderful reality of Job, and the thing to cling on to here, is that because of this, Christ is also our advocate in pain, in suffering, our advocate when we experience injustice. Brothers and sisters, you have an advocate. You have one who has come for you, who is willing to suffer with you and fight for you, and one who is able to bring your cause in your suffering before the Father. Why? Because he is the very Son of God from heaven, the one who was with God and was God and became flesh. And friends, that is what gives a Christian hope in suffering. It isn't wishful thinking. It's, it's, it's not even that maybe my situation will get better. Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But for a Christian, hope ultimately comes because Jesus has risen from the dead. He has conquered death. And he will return. And to finish off with, we need to turn to James 5. Because James is the one place where uh, the... Uh, sorry, one of two places where the book of Job is quoted in the New Testament. Uh, we heard uh, Jesus himself refer to it. He didn't, didn't quote from it, but Jesus refers to the story of Job with Peter uh, being sifted by Satan. Uh, there's one other quote we'll get to tomorrow, but James 5, where Job is actually mentioned by name. Sorry, the one place that New Testament mentions Job by name is here in James, where Job is described as an example of patience. 
What is the one thing Job is remembered for in the New Testament? He is an example of waiting for the coming of the Lord. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 11. An example. You have heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, how does Job help us to understand the Christian experience? Job is one who waited for God to send an advocate, one who would rescue him and bring all things to rights. Last uh, weekend, I spoke on this part, part of Job at our, at our church in Palmerston North. And a woman at our church got up and shared her story. That just a few weeks before, she had lost an unborn child at 26 weeks. In scans, there were abnormalities and the child was diagnosed with Uh, genetic disorder. Eventually they had to go to Wellington Hospital and the baby died in the womb. Uh, The child, Laura, was delivered a few days later. The remarkable thing was that in such a, a desolate situation. She could speak of hope. How? How could you you speak of hope in a situation like that? She expressed thanks to her church community for the care that she had experienced through them. But she says, ultimately, I I give thanks to God because I know that death isn't the end and that by God's power he will raise my child. That because of Jesus I have the hope of meeting my daughter one day. And can I tell you there was not a dry eye in the room. Friends, we live in a world that desperately needs hope. A world where real hope is very hard to find. We live among people who are crying out for real hope. And the opportunity we have as those who know this hope and who are freed To show concern and suffering, I think it's just so wonderful to hear of the love that exists within this church and the intentionality to make sure that continues and grows. For those who are being made more like Jesus, see, who are are those you know who are most like Jesus? It's those who are willing to enter into the suffering of others, isn't it? When you think of those around you 
who reflect Christ to you. It's, it's those who are, who are willing to care, who are willing to suffer alongside others and enter into their experience. It's certainly true of me. I thank God for people in my life like that who show me more clearly what Christ is like by their sympathy and, and compassion. And friends, that is our opportunity to offer that care. But as we do so, as we offer that care, to also offer the hope of the gospel. And, and to say to people, when, when people look at you and, and ask whether verbally or, or non-verbally, is it, is it going to get better? Are things going to get better? To, to speak of Jesus and to say yes. And, and can I tell you why I believe that there is hope? Friends, Jesus sends us out with that calling. And why don't we pray that he would so indwell us that we live up to that calling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our our mediator, our advocate, you are the one who has come from heaven and and punched a hole in the the heavens and and come down and, and... you are, you are with us and you are for us, and we praise you for that. And we pray that you would make us more like you, that you would send your spirit, and that we would be empowered to offer this hope to a world around us which so desperately needs to hear it. We pray in the name of the Son of God who loved us and died for us. Amen.